Welcome to Ride Along Chronicles. I'm Vicki. I'm Tina. And I'm Sally. We are three great friends who created our own support system as we raise our families in the challenging first responder lifestyle. Our confidential guests will share their stories in this safe space that didn't exist for us. So ride along with us as we chronicle lessons learned and provide helpful resources to keep Leo families in the front seat. Welcome to another special episode of Ride Along Chronicles. Today we have a special guest, Patrick Fitzgibbons, who is a retired police officer and um, has his own podcast called CJ Evolution. He has written a book called Evolve, and he has also, you know, gone through the trials and tribulations of his own mental health struggles and actually came out for the better on the other side. He has attended a um, on-site facility or an out-of-state facility called Shatterproof and became part of that organization. And today he's going to share some information uh, about that organization. And he's going to tell us the story of his, I'm going to say, evolution (laughs) from Uh retired police officer to now being on the other end of helping first responders, um, not just the general public. And Vicki, we came across Pat because um, you have quite a network of um, resources through your peer support groups. And I know when you met him, it you were oh, yeah. so excited, and you had so much information um, that you wanted to share about him. Tell us a I, little bit. I did, because, you know, in all of the networks that we meet, and all of the resources that we have, you know, they all have a niche, right? Mm-hmm. They all have, mm-hmm. uh, they all want to help in some way, and usually they have one kind of form of uh, treatment or assistance or focus, and it's rare to find all of that in one person versus one treatment facility or one therapist or or group. Um, And for him to be willing to share it, especially coming from, you know, being a first responder, a law enforcement officer, and rising to the level of a commander, and then being able to come back, because, Mm -hmm. you know, you think retirement, I'm done, I put that thing away, I'm kind of proud of it, but I'm ready for the next chapter. But to actually have your, come to your worst thing and have that mental health struggle and reach that rock bottom they talk about in retirement Mm -hmm. is not something that you hear people that talk about that, especially the first responders. And so to come back from that and to go to treatment and then say, you know what? I need to come back here and help Mm -hmm. because I know what it is like now and I've been there and I can walk somebody through that journey and have them feel like they are supported Mm -hmm. and they're not alone. And that's really what peer support is. A lot of times it's peer-to-peer. It's similar instances or or similar ways of of thinking or recovering Mm -hmm. and wanting to do that for somebody else and being ready to do it. And I think for him to turn his whole life around and give back, because as we know, cops... We are not good at taking care of ourselves. We're much better at taking care of others. Right, you know, we've been right. hearing that over and over. And there's what he brings to the table is that there's still a way to give back even after retirement, even after climbing out of a hole of trauma and years of experience where you think you're done with it and it just keeps coming back to bite you and still help. That gives you purpose. That gives you identity. It keeps you still in that focus of why you even did this work and why you did this career. Um, I was, I'm just fascinated. I think he has a lot to offer and I'm so excited for others to hear his story. Me too. He has such a passion for this and it's very contagious. And unfortunately, Tina was not able to be with us today during this interview, but I know she's excited to hear it as well and she will be listening. So let's get to it. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you both for, you for in, inviting me. It's an honor to be here. Well, thank you for being here. So, Patrick, tell us a little bit about yourself. Give us a little bit of background history on uh, how you became an officer, when you became, how long you were an officer. Well, I, again, thank you for having me. It's an honor. Mm-hmm. I always love going on other shows. Uh, again, my name is Pat Fitzgibbons. Uh, I did my law enforcement career 23 years in Colorado between two agencies. Nice. I started off uh, in the Eastern Plains. I grew up in Denver. Okay. And so my first job was in the Eastern Plains of Colorado. And for the listeners, there's nothing out there. There's like, 
you know, cows and stuff like that. It was like, but so I started there thinking I was just going to go to this small town. You know, I would stay there for a few years and go back to a metro agency, you know, in Colorado. But I'll tell you, that little town in southeastern Colorado was, it was very, very busy, you know. So I, I we were handling everything from homicides to drugs to... In like the patrol level? Yeah, wow. patrol level. Wow. And so I really got an education. I was there for about 10 years and then... I wanted to move back to the metro area, and uh, but I, during that time, I went back to school. I didn't go to college right away after high school. Uh, I went to school, got a graduate degree, and I kind of got recruited into wow. the corporate security field. So I did that for about six months. I said, I don't want this. Mm-hmm. I was traveling a lot, and so uh, I ended up getting back into law enforcement. So I uh, ended my career with an agency just outside of Boulder, Colorado. It's mm. been about 13 it's years there. there. So yeah, it's gorgeous. Oh. Uh, and I, you know, I always wanted to be a cop. I have family that were Chicago police officers, and so it was kind of in my blood. And after the military, I really wanted to pursue that. And so that's what got me into so law enforcement. Military and law enforcement. Yeah, military and law enforcement. Yeah, common as well amongst yeah, yeah. the culture. Yeah, very common. Um, I love the, you know, military or law enforcement, as you know, Vicki. I mean, it's paramilitary. So I was used to that military structure. Grew up in a military family. And so I yearned for that after I got out. So I naturally gravitated towards towards law enforcement. And I had a good career. I was blessed to have a really good career. Rose among the ranks, retired as a commander. That's awesome. What other, um, you retired as a commander, but what did you do during the law enforcement? You were a street patrol. Yeah, I was patrol. I was detective. You know, I did a little SRT stuff. Um, I was an SRO, which is school resource officer. You know, I was a street supervisor. So I really, you know, I was, again, blessed to wear uh, many different hats during my career. So. That's awesome. And then retirement. And retirement. You know, I How retired. How that transition? You know, it was, uh, you know, retirement was, uh, I talk about this a lot. And re- retirement at the time, I was like, yeah, I'm excited, you know. But then I kind of, you know, after I retired, everything was great. But then I I think a lot of officers out there, once they retire, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but some I know, they go through like an identity crisis. Right. Oh, absolutely. And that definitely happened to me after I retired. I mean, I'm, I'm no longer a cop, you know, which to me was like, it's good and bad because, you know, I didn't feel like, um, you know, I had a place anymore. Right. That nobody needed me anymore. So I, I struggled with that for a while. Uh, but now I'm, in today's environment, I, I'm pretty happy I'm out of it. You know, it thank God for the... years, but it does, it does, you can retire well and adjust. It just doesn't yeah. happen overnight. Yeah, it doesn't happen overnight. You know, um, I was so anxious to get out, but then when I was out, like I said, I kind of missed it. I mean, I always tell people, you know, people say, do you miss law enforcement? I say, well, I miss some of the clowns. I don't miss the circus. So, um, oh, but sure. I still respect very much, obviously, the brave men and women who serve every day. And it's a tough environment, a lot tougher than I think when I first got in. Oh, I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. I think we've had a couple of guests before that talked about, you know, it's the oddest moments that the identity crisis, if you will, of I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. It comes with a, and, and I never thought of this either, but it's when they call the police for something for the first time as like an yeah. actual civilian. <laughs> and they don't get to say like, or they, or they fill something out and they don't put their, like if they were an officer, detective, a commander, whatever, it's just a name now. Yeah. They have to I'm readjust. Like, what? Yeah. yeah. And so we've kind of heard that it's it creeps up on you when or when you're driving and you see the speeder and you're just like, oh, if I yeah. can just pull if I you should just had a light on my car. Yes. You know? And then especially if they move away and now they're not in the area where they know yeah. somebody. Um, so I'm just curious if you had some of those moments. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and kind of. You know, definitely. You know, I had to learn to like, okay, don't do anything. Just be a good witness kind of thing. <laughs> Sit and, here. And call it in, you know. But yeah, I mean, definitely I went through that. Um, because, you know, it's such a part of your life for so long, depending on how long people do it. You know, I did it for a long time, just like you, know, you did, Vicky. And, and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's so much of your life for so long that it's almost second nature. And. You want to help and you want to get involved, but then you you know as you as you're done with it and retired, you got to step back and let the yeah. let the people who do it do it. Do it. <laughs> it's easier said than done. Yeah, <laughs> it's easy, very very easier. So did you kind of after a while start transitioning into retirement? Kind of found a new flow, a new normal, and was there a time where things were like okay? Yeah, my, when I when I retired, you know, I I kind of went through a kind of depressing period and. But then we, my, my wife and I traveled and did other things. I wrote a book uh, after that little micro book that you mentioned mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning for first responders, awesome. kind of my journey. 
uh, through law enforcement. It's a small read because we know cops can't read. <laughs> simple. Keep you know, it quick simple, and simple, right? You know, I should have put some pictures in there, but uh, scratch and sniffs or whatever. But I, I, I kept it very brief. But it was just kind of I wanted to do it, you know, you know, to get back to, to law enforcement. So, yeah, I mean, there was some normalcy there for, for a while. And, uh, you know, I started to enjoy retirement to an extent. And so then when did kind of the things changed? Well, you know, I, my, my dad passed away mm, uh, in 2019, uh, a couple months after I retired. Uh, he had heart problems. He died pretty young. He was 74. Oh, yeah. uh, so, uh, so that hit me kind of hard. It hit the whole family. Sure. Uh, I was pretty close to my dad. So that hit me pretty hard. And a- after that, I kind of started getting, you know, okay, I wasn't a cop. I lost my dad. Obviously, my dad's more important than, than a job. But I, I started kind of drinking more and, and kind of loss. What's that? A lot of loss. Yeah, a lot of loss. You know, it's a double whammy, you know, a career and, and then uh, losing my, my father. And so I kind of you know, started arguing with my wife a little bit more, started drinking a little bit more. Uh, and then, you know, some other things happened in my life that really kind of put me on a course where I was just severely depressed. My son attempted suicide. Mm. Um, he survived awesome. uh, and he got the help he needed. But yeah. uh, I remember finding him with my stepdaughter on the kitchen floor where he had drank a lot and. Uh, took a bunch of ibuprofen and tried to kill himself. At the time, I didn't know what was going on until we found some suicide notes, uh. and that hit me pretty hard. And then after yeah. that, I just kind of spiraled. And then I got went through a pretty messy divorce. Oh, on um, top of that. What's up? On top of that. On top of that, shortly after that. Oh. And, you know, I look back on it, and I tell people all the time, I, I would have divorced myself too at that <laughs> point. <laughs> you know, I mean, looking back, I mean, I don't fault my wife for – for getting divorced, even though marriage is a two-way street, but sure. I was in a bad place and I was isolating and, you know, suicidal ideation, all that stuff. So, you know, it was a tough time. Wow. So how did you get help? You know, I, I remember uh, after... Like how did you hide it? To, I guess well, I, I mean, like- as as cops, you know, Vicky, we're, we're really good at putting on masks. Uh, I was really good at, you know, kind of manipulating and, and telling people I was fine, even though physically I was, de- I was deteriorating. I mean, I wasn't right. taking care of myself. Uh, I lost a bunch of weight. Uh, I remember I was, you know, having thoughts of, you know, suicide, stuff like that. I I was drinking a lot. Uh, I developed severe anxiety, but I managed to pull it together when I was around family. And people say, how are you? And I say, you know, fine. But the more I learned, especially after therapy, was, you know, fine doesn't mean you're fine. Oh, I don't like that word. Fine stands for? Yeah, effed up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So that's what it means. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I finally got a place in my life where I was going to kill myself. Um, had the gun to my head and and was going to pull the trigger. And I was so depressed. I remember crying in bed and I just wanted uh, it to end, and I put the gun down, reached for a phone instead, and called oh, wow. my sister uh, I'm really close with. I'm close with all my siblings, and, and she rushed over, and that began my journey uh, wow. in uh, treatment and mental health treatment. That's awesome. So during that time, if I can ask, um, you know, you said you hide it, you know, because we, I mean, train manipulators, you know, yeah, like, yeah, exactly. like you can put that face on easy. We do it all the time. Yeah. Looking back now or later, did you find out that there were some people around you that noticed something but just didn't know how to ask or, you know, even if it's okay to ask? Absolutely. I mean, they, you know, I mean, again, they, when people know, especially family, they know you. But I think that they were, um, they would ask me if I'm okay and, and they wouldn't kind of dig deeper, you know, because I think sometimes people are like that. I mean, they just don't want to offend you or, or things like that, and sometimes I can have a presence about me, like don't don't mess with me, kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they asked me a couple times, and but there was no mistaking I was I was in a bad place. But I would I would kind of get defensive and say no, I'm fine, and shut down and 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 play that card. And but meanwhile, I was deteriorating. I lost, I you know I'm 240 now. I, I was down to like 190 at one point, wow. so I lost a lot of weight, and I wasn't wasn't eating very much. I was just deteriorating. I would stay in bed most of the day. I was pretty, I was turning into a really, you know, an introvert. And, you know, I, it was like Groundhog Day. I tell people, you know, I, I'd get up in the morning and I'd get, you know, wait for the liquor store to open, go get my booze and then come back, start drinking. And it was just rinse and repeat all the time for yeah. several days. And it got so bad. I remember, you know, sitting in the backyard, I had moved one after, you know, during the divorce, I moved out and moved in with my younger brother. And, um, I remember sitting in his backyard, just looking at a shed in the backyard going, okay, that's where I'm going to kill myself. Mm. 
and actually planning it out and writing it out. And, you know, I'm just, obviously I'm glad I'm not. Sure. I didn't, it didn't carry no, out with I'm that. I'm glad you're not either. <laughs> I'm glad you're not either. <laughs> Me too. I, I want to ask a, a question. It's going to be a little bit deeper. Sure. And let me know if it's okay or not. You have a military background. Mm-hmm. You have a police background. And then you retire. Yeah. But there was no specific incident that caused the retirement. It was just simply time served, right? It's 23 years. Yeah. You've done your, your 20 plus. How were you as an officer um, in relation to your family? Was it... You know, you, you have this military, you've, you've got this, you know, you, I'm, I would imagine you're very regimented and routine yeah, yeah. and you've got a certain way things have to be. And then you go to be a cop and you've, now you're a commander and things have to be a very specific way as well. How did that translate at home? And I, I, it's kind of a two-parter and I tend to do this a lot. Um, <laughs> were there any incidences during the military and um, law enforcement career that kind of got stuffed down, not addressed. Yeah. And then you had that personality type at home. Like, what was that like? You know, I, th- I remember certain instances in the military. I, I was asked this recently that, and well, actually, it came up in uh, therapy too. I remember I was down at Fort Bragg with the 82nd Airborne Division. So I was Airborne Infantry in the military. Okay. Uh, 82nds, an elite unit, you know, anywhere in the world in 18 hours. And I remember, this was years ago when I was in the military, uh, a good friend of mine, I was supposed to jump, I was supposed to parachute that day. And I remember one of my friends came up to me and said, hey, I need to take your place because I need to get a jump in. Because, you know, we, we have to maintain that jump status to, to get paid. And I already had a couple jumps that week. And so he wanted to take my place. And I said, okay, you can take my place. Well, long story short, he ended up dying. Uh, the same day because Pope Air Force Base is right next to Fort Bragg in North Carolina. And what happened was an F-16 was flying in. The pilot lost control of the plane, ejected. All these paratroopers run what they call green ramp, which is how they load up onto the planes. And the plane came down, killed like so many people. And my wife at the time, my first wife, didn't know. She, I told her I was jumping that day. But I remember that... Um, I was obviously distraught, like so many, and you could read about this uh, online. I was supposed to be on that plane, and I remember uh, one of my first sergeants or one of the sergeants came up to me and said, you just got to bury it, hmm. you know. Because that's just, what it was about. Because that's what it was about. Pull you up know, your bootstraps. Yeah, use and that and use that, you know, and just keep fighting. And so I think it really started uh, with that and then other things that I witnessed in the military. Um, but yeah, to your point, I think it started in the military. I came from a military family, so, you know, it was, you know, suck it up kind of yeah. stuff and, and just keep going on. But, uh, to answer your question more, yeah, definitely. And, you know, in law enforcement, when I got into law enforcement, I brought what I had learned in the military and of course how I was raised with a military father and my siblings to, to suck it up. And I, to answer your question, I don't think I was, a, I, in fact, I know I wasn't a good father for a long time when I was a cop because I was so focused on work. You know, and doing overtime, making money. And, you know, like a lot of first responder families, doesn't matter if you're fire or police or whatever, you know, you miss a lot of of your kids, you know, growing up, birthdays, stuff like that. Holidays. And so, yeah, I regret that, you know, obviously. Uh, I think I'm a better parent in the last couple of years, uh, but my kids are older now. So I missed a lot of that, you know, growing up. And I I wasn't there for them because I was so so focused on being there for other people. So it's tough for first responder families. You you have to be able to have that that balance. Yeah. You know, the one thing I learned, albeit later, was it's just a job. Yeah. You know, it's it's just a job, and I'm, I don't mean any disrespect to the listener, but it's just a job, and the job's going to survive without you. Yep. The and sun's the us. sun's the sun's going to rise mm-hmm. tomorrow without you there. But I think. A lot of first responders don't realize that, and they sacrifice the most important thing is the family and spending quality time with their kids and their spouses and or significant other, whatever you want to call it. But I learned it was just later on. <laughs> yeah, but at least you did. I, I and, learned, and, and yeah. that relationship yeah, is repaired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. And so I have a great relationship with my kids now. Uh, I put them through through hell. You know, when I was going through periods, I remember uh, I just wrote an article for Police One, and I, I I talk about this where I would call my kids severely intoxicated when I was in those dark places telling him I'm gonna I'm gonna kill myself I'm gonna commit suicide and my kids are older but it didn't matter 
and no, they're they were like they're young, 20 young well, adults, no, right? Yeah, well, no, they, they were they were they were in they were older, but you know, my my son was probably 18 or you know, and my daughter was in her 20s, but um, I've been calling him up saying, Look, I'm, I'm hammered, I'm gonna kill myself, I love you both, and so to put them through that, you yeah. know, their father who you know, I should be helping them. Right. And now, you know, they're, they're trying to help me and, and talk me through that. So I had a lot of apologizing to do when, when I got better. I was say, and when did that come that you talk about apologizing? Um, what did your treatment look like? How did you even get there? So, you know, I remember my, so I, you know, I, I finally reached out, you know, grabbed my cell phone, called my younger sister, uh, Kelly, who I'm very close to. I'm close to all my steps, but Kelly and I have a unique bond. And, and so I called her up and said, you need to get over here. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hurt myself and so she took me to uh, she came over we cried she took me to uh, a local hospital in Denver and (laughs) and so because she was on the phone with you know some some doctors and they say you need to admit him and so I remember driving to the hospital with my sister and I'm still drunk and you know emotional and crying and but then I kind of started thinking okay the cop mind went in and I said, okay, wait a minute. I know what's going to happen. I was waiting. I was waiting because. I know what's going to happen is I'm going to get there. Even though I'm self-admitting, uh, I have to be careful with what I say. You know, so I remember getting to the hospital and we get checked in and I'm thinking, I'm looking around. I'm like, there's no friggin' way I'm staying here. It's like one flew over the cuckoo's nest, you know, nurse ratchet running around screaming at people. I'm like, great. I'm not staying here. So I get into the hospital smock or whatever. They put me in a sterile room. And there's nothing there to hurt yourself. And I remember, okay, now I'm getting irritated. You know? And my sister's not there, obviously, in the room with me. She's out in the waiting room. And I remember this young psychologist came in, and she's like, I understand, you know, you're going through some stuff. I'm giving you the short version. And she said, um, do you want to hurt yourself? I said, no. She said, well, I talked to your sister, and your sister said, do you want to hurt yourself? Nah, I'm good. You know, because I was, I was irritated. I just didn't want to be yeah. there. And I remember through my show, I've had it for a while, I remember hearing, it started going through my mind, I remember there was a place, I couldn't remember the name, but there was a place down in Florida. So I just wanted out of the hospital. Okay. So I said everything I needed to say. Yeah. I remember the psychologist was like, well, I think you're gonna have to stay here. I was like, no, I don't think so. I haven't given you any indication. I haven't told you anything. I know, I know how the, the law. I know how the game works. <laughs> I didn't say, say that, but I, I, I knew she couldn't hold me in. And uh, so I ended up discharging. My sister was furious. She was pissed off. She was like, what the hell is wrong with you? So I got back home and I realized, okay, I still needed help. I still needed help. So I went to bed the next morning. I started making calls. And I started, you know, just that was the first thing. I started using my network. I know a lot of people and I'm blessed to know a lot of people. And so I started using my network and I ended up reaching out to a guy who's down here, a good friend of mine. And so I reached out to him and he said, brother, he said, I, I'd love to have you down in Arizona, but the place you need to be is in uh, Florida at a place called Shatterproof. I was like, well, what's Shatterproof? Right. And he started telling me about it. He's like one of the best facilities out there. It's only for first responders. So he connected me with some people who worked at Shatterproof, ended up talking to them and I remember uh, another good friend of mine, Alex Menez, who works for uh, Shatterproof, he, he called me up and said, yeah, we, we want you down here. And I remember crying, and my sister was with me, and I was sobbing because now I was going to get the treatment I needed, but I, I was going to be in a treatment facility that was in, in a first responder-only program because I just wanted to talk to other first responders. I was going to say, was that phone call coming from somebody, not only from the facility, but somebody who actually spoke the language, understood, exactly. and used some common language that would... Yeah. Did that help you kind Absolutely. of? Absolutely, it did. Because Alex is a Alex Mania is a friend of mine. He's a, he's a, a BD, a business development rep like me. He's a national liaison, except he's on the East Coast, but he's former military, and so he was speaking the language and he was telling me, "Oh man, it's a, it's a good program." And so they wanted to get me on a plane that night, and I was like, "Whoa, wait a minute, yeah. <laughs> too much, I, too fast." <laughs> I got some stuff to do. Yeah. But within forty eight hours, I was on a plane. I was down in Florida. And I was in the Shatterproof program, and I tell people all the time, not just because I work for them now, but because it's it saved my life. It's a great program, and so now I'm blessed to to work with uh, Shatterproof. Yeah. And you flew yourself down there? No, they the program flew me down there. But I mean, you by yourself? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the program. How was that? Oh, it was. Traveling. I was terrifying. I you bet. know, because I was I was at a point, Vicky, where I was so um, I was such an introvert. You know, I was used to staying in all the time. I remember I was like really happy I was going, but then the dread set in. 
And I remember my sister uh, took me to the airport the day I stayed with her the night and she drove me to the airport. Now, DIA, Denver International, is about 30 minutes away from my sister's house. And I was excited to go, but I was scared to death. You know, and I remember the 30 minute drive from her house to the airport, I smoked a pack and a half of cigarettes. Oh, wow. Because I was so nervous. Now, I've never experienced experienced this type of anxiety before. Hmm. I've never have, but I was I was so I was in such a bad place and I was so scared. And I remember she dropped me off at the terminal, gave me a hug, a kiss, you know, and we love you. And I remember she was texting me when I was going through the the terminal to the gate and she was like just get on the plane just get on the plane just get on the plane and I was freaking out and then I was scared and I remember I got on the plane then I started to okay I'm on the plane I'm safe as long as it doesn't crash I'm safe Um, (laughs) all these lovely thoughts thoughts. I mean that's where my mind was and I remember journaling on the plane and I was you know writing out all my fears and and what I was scared of at the time and 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 uh you know, got to Fort Lauderdale, a couple hours away, three hours away. And somebody met you there. Yeah, somebody met me oh, there. I'm they sure had a team that, that met me there, a car, and they scooped me up, and they brought me right to the facility, and I began my treatment. So, and how long were you there? I was there for a little over a month. Wow, that's a long time. Yeah, it's a long time. And we generally like keeping um, uh, patients down there, who first responders who go. Now, I should back up and say FHE Health is the, the company I work for, but Shatterproof is just one of the programs I work for. There's about seven programs under FHE Health. With my background, I just I work in the first responder program, which is Shatterproof. But it's designed for about 30 to 45 days. Not so stretch for some people. Sure. But we just don't want to get people down there for a couple of days and say, all right, here, here you go, you're, yeah. you know, and kick them out the door. We want our different treatment modalities to, to sink in. And it did with me. I mean, I was in it 100%. And it was a little intimidating, you know, the first time I was in a group because we do like a combination of, you know, traditional therapies like one-on-one therapy, group therapy. We are all with first, you're just with first responders. And then we do a holistic, you know, like with breath work and yoga and acupuncture and, uh, you know, EMDR and RRT and you do a lot with the brain. What's RRT? Yeah, it's rapid uh, response therapy. Okay. You know, and the EMDR is another, you've probably heard of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's different treatment modalities down there. The, the thing that really, um, really was a game changer for me was the work that we do with the brain, you know, like neurofeedback and neurostimulation where they can act, we can actually take a map of your brain. Uh, it's called an EEG and take a map of your brain and identify the troubled areas of the brain that you're and it's all run by clinicians and neuroscientists mm-hmm. and, we can actually identify or they can say, all right, Pat, this is what you're dealing with in these sections of the brain and through subsequent treatment through like micro stimulations. I remember I first heard about this on the electric shock therapy in there. Like, <laughs> I'm no. teased. No, no, it's not that. But it's little micro amps because the brain essentially is electricity. You know, it's it's running off electrical currents and, and all this other stuff. So through that kind of treatment, it really kind of resets your brain and kind of works on those areas to to help the brain, you know, because the brain can heal. Yeah. yeah, it can heal itself. Uh, so it's very, very resilient. So, And I yeah. have to ask because I'm pretty sure on your answer, but you even said it by explaining. It's a brain injury. It they is. They explained a brain. That's a scientific. Yeah. They didn't say, hey, we're going to look at the brain so we can see what kind of PTSD you have so we can talk about your emotions and see what you're gone, right? Most cops are like, oh, too much yeah. feelings, this, that. But the fact that they are, are feeding like no different health information than if you had a broken foot or if you Absolutely. had a pulled muscle, do you feel that component um, helps kind of digest for somebody to go, okay, I do have an injury. Yeah. I do have a problem. It doesn't mean I'm crazy. It just means I've got to take care of it. Yeah. Do you Absolutely. think having that piece the way it is, because not all therapies, I should say all treatment facilities really spend a lot of time on they educate on the feelings and why and why trauma happens and how the bonds of it or all that, but not many, and maybe it's changing in some ways, but really explain the scientific and the way the brain works and how it fires and how it's just an injury. Do you feel like that might be a better way or have you even seen that that can actually get some buy-in on the first responder that's coming down there to actually believe Abs- in it? Absolutely. I was out with a, a colleague of mine. Um, uh, I told you, Vicki, we were out in, uh, with Illinois State Police. 
uh, a couple months ago. And the minute we started talking, and again, I'm not a clinician, I'm not a neuroscientist, well, but the, the uh, Annalie, who's a clinician down at Shatterproof, I mean, she knows a lot more about the brain than I do. And once we started talking about the brain, because it all starts with the brain, whether mm -hmm. you're talking about addiction, anything, it all starts with your mind. And so once we started talking, or she started talking about the brain and brain health, well, people perked up because the brain is intriguing for a lot of people. We don't know a lot about it. We're learning more. Sure. But as soon as you start talking about brain and you put it in layman's terms, because <laughs> right. I'm not very smart, I'm like, what are you talking about? I <laughs> but once you start putting it in language that people can understand, people, a lot of people are like, oh, wow, I never knew that. You know, I never knew that. And once you start telling people that we can actually help, you know, heal your brain, you know, we can actually help your brain kind of restore to that function where it was before, before the addiction, before all these problems you're having. People perk up because, like I said, it all starts with the brain, believe wow. it or not. You know, it all starts and in the six inches. it's a safe topic. It is a safe topic. It's the brain. It's, it's a foot. It's a hand. It's yeah. not feelings. And, yeah. You know. But the brain can be healed. You know, that's the one thing I learned down there, and they do amazing work. That was, that was a game changer. It's all great, the different treatment uh, that I received down there, but the – the neurostimulation was wow. It was like, I remember I did about five treatments and it was like literally, it was like a light switch go on. And I was like, wow. You know, along with all the other different treatments I was doing down there. It's all great treatment. But the neurostimulation was huge. huge. And not a lot of, I mean, neurofeedback is out there. I mean, you can sure. Google and find out a lot of places that do, do neurofeedback right now. But neurostimulation is, it's not very common. Not yet. But we've been doing it for a long time. That's great. Well, you mentioned the modalities, different therapies. I'm curious because, again, we do have a lot of first responders that end up in some treatment. Sure. And either they come back saying, you know, I scared the clinician with my stories, and I think now she needs, you know, some therapy. <laughs> you know, you've heard that. Oh, I've heard that. I went through that, yeah. Well, well thank you then. You validated what yeah, I yeah, said. Yeah. Or in group therapy, you know, they go to just even a professional group and you know, again, we mask it, we manipulate it, and it's like we never get to the root. Did you find or do you even see the difference between being in a therapy with a bunch of first responders versus maybe a traditional, conventional one? Having that kind, what makes that different? Well, I, I went through a little bit of treatment just with uh, a regular, and, and this is not a knock on no, you know, a regular all. therapist that aren't first responder background or not trained first responders. Uh, they're, they're doing a very difficult job, and God bless them. But, uh, you know, first responders, for the most part, they want to be with other first responders. I can't speak for every first responder out there. Sure. But when I was in group, knowing that the people in front of me were all first responders, the people facilitating the group were former first responders, former military, I felt more at ease. I felt, it, even though I was still nervous, I, was, I felt more, you know, trust between sure. us. And it's not like, okay, who has the most, you know, you know, horrible story or tragedy that happened to him. nobody's, it's not a contest right. because no matter what you're going through, it's important to you. Mm -hmm. sure. And that's the one thing I realized very quickly is, you know, some of these stories I was hearing from these first responders, like, Oh my God, but it's not a contest. Right. Everybody suffers with their own baggage, but being in a group with first responders, you can't get away. <laughs> I was getting there. You know, you can't, you can't Tell BS. Us about you can't, that. You, can't, you, can't, yeah, yeah. you can't BS a bunch of BSers. You know, yeah. there's no way you're going to get away. Not that we hound and not that we're harassing people. Sure. But what happens is, because I went through a lot of group therapy down at Shatterproof, is if you're sitting there quiet, you know, and, and eventually people are, the other patients in there are going to start, come on, man, you need to, you need to open up. You need to open up. And once you start opening up, once I started to open up, that's when the, the, you know, the healing starts, yeah. you know, and that's when you start feeling better. And it's very difficult to talk about your problems, especially in a group of a bunch of strangers. But when they're all first responders, I think that's when, you know, the magic starts happening yeah. because nobody's there judging. Right. Nobody's there. And there's people that, that come back, right. you know, and nobody treats them any differently. You know, because sometimes treatment is just not one and done. Sometimes you need subsequent treatments right. and, and people come back and nobody's judging them. You know? and do you think the fact that especially nowadays being with just first responder, there's a safety element or a I'm going to be less paranoid to be vulnerable and to be real and raw when I know that the people in the room do what I do and Absolutely. You know, are, are kind of in the same mindset, same kind of integrity feel um, versus maybe 
you know, an open therapy groups, you know, where there's folks from everywhere where yeah. that fear or that wall of, am I safe? Are they going to know what I do? Absolutely. Are they going to, it, it, it kind of sometimes can hinder. Absolutely. Hinder. You know, look, and, and again, this is not knocking the public, no, but, you know, I mean, in today's environment, you, you know, if you're in a traditional uh, th group therapy, you don't, you don't know who's sitting next to you. Right. Uh, it could be somebody who hates cops, you know, I mean, it could be, you know, and so you really don't know. So to answer your question, when you're with other first responders, yeah, there's definitely a degree of safety there where you feel free to, that you can open up. It's still very difficult, but at least you know the the man and woman that are in those uh, groups, you know, are, are former first responders and not just cops, you know, fire, EMS, corrections, dispatchers. I think dispatchers get left behind a lot. Oh, yeah. And I, I've always, you know, viewed them as first responders. And thankfully, they're being classified as first responders. But dispatchers, you know, military veterans, um, you know, everybody has a story. Everybody's going right. through stuff. But definitely when you're with first responders, there's more of a, okay, a trust and security uh, aspect of it. So as you're kind of moving through therapy, as you're saying, yeah. you're, you're transitioning, kind of, you know, getting to the end of that treatment plan and and going what was your communication like with your family oh i was i was communicating with them every day so most treatment facilities and you both probably know this you know when you're good when you're going to treatment they're going to take your they're going to take your cell phone they're going to take your electronics to kind of monitor you get you clinically stable medically stable uh so i i was out without my cell phone for like four days my family knew my kids knew where i was sure. at i was getting help they were very proud of me my family knew and I tell you the truth, when I, I didn't have my cell phone initially, I was like, being on crack or something with my phone. <laughs> but then after a couple of days, I was like, I don't need my phone. But once I got over to the shatterproof side, once I got out of intake, you, know, you get your electronics back, your phone. I was talking to my kids almost every day. I actually found out my when I was in treatment that my daughter was pregnant. She called me up all excited. Oh, so that's awesome. I didn't have a little grandson. But yeah, I was connecting with my, my family all the time. And you know. did you feel like there was a healing process that needed to happen? Did it start during, even from in there, or a repairing process with Absolutely. your kids? Absolutely, you know, it started inside. As, as soon as, you know, I, I, I stopped drinking, and as soon as I started going through treatment, feeling better about myself, I'm in a good place, I'm in a safe place, then I was, I, I had more clarity, I had more, you know, I was more in the moment, and then I could get on the phone and, and talk to my kids and talk to them as not just my kids my other other family members who uh, I was you know that were worried about me I remember and I, I you, you might remember me talking about this Vicky I remember a good friend of mine because I told a couple of people I used to work with where I was what I was doing a really good friend oh of mine. really I used to supervise he called me up and said hey man how you doing I, this is like two or three weeks into it oh boy and I, I said I'm doing great and he said look some some people that you used to work with are, are asking about how you're doing would you mind if I told them where you're at and what you're doing, and I said, absolutely not, hmm. you know, uh, because I'm no longer afraid. I'm no longer scared because I think one of the things that hinders wow. first responders, uh, especially cops is, you know, this, a lot of it's ego, I think, you know, and a lot of it's fear. We don't know, uh, you know, the unknown is scary to a lot right. of it. It's scary to me, but some of it's ego for me, it was both. You know, what are people going to think of me? What are people going to say about me? Yep. What are people going to, oh, my God, I have this show, and I'm always telling people that you should do this, and now I'm the one in treatment. But once I got to a place where I was like, screw it, I don't care what people think. You know, people are going to judge. I don't care. I'm doing this for me. You know, one of the things I learned in treatment was you have, I needed to be very selfish with my self-care. Now, that mm -hmm. doesn't mean I'm a narcissist or I don't care about my family, but I have to take care of me first. Right. I'm blessed. My kids are older now. I don't, you know, it's just me. And, but I have to take care of myself first. And as first responders, I think that's hard for a lot of us oh, because yeah. we're so used, we're so wired and conditioned to take care of others before we take care of ourselves. And so I learned that, although I went through hell learning yeah. that, I mean, I, I, I learned it, you know, and it's better to learn, you know, later than never at all. I bet. Oh, for yeah. sure. Can I go back just a little bit? Um, you mentioned that when you got on the plane, you started journaling. Yeah. So you had done traditional um, yeah. counseling or therapy. How long was that? At what time frame? It, it wasn't very long. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember, and it brought me up to what Vicky said. I remember I had this counseling session with this uh, young woman. She was really nice. But I remember she started getting upset when I started telling her stories. And I'm like, I'm thinking, well, who's here to help who? Am I yeah. here to help you? Or <laughs> And so that I did that for a while before, um, before uh, 
shatterproof. I actually had one call with her before I got on a plane, and I knew that no, I wasn't gonna. Wasn't gonna work. And did anybody know that you were in therapy? Was that something that was kind of masked as well? It was kind of masked. Yeah, yeah. Until I got down to treatment, then I really started sharing people. I started feeling better. Uh, I started, you know, really opening up and. Because I could have kept it secret, you know, but I, I wanted to continue to, to give back. Sure. Can, um, just so that someone who might be contemplating this, or this might be an option for them, what does a day in the life look like at Shatterproof? What is the, what is the from wake up yeah. to bedtime? Well, everybody's on a different uh, patient track. Okay. You know, um, we have downtime. But the one thing about Shatterproof, it's just, it doesn't look like, the campus does not look like a treatment facility. It's in Florida. It's, okay. it's about 30 minutes away from Deerfield Beach. It's an open facility. Um, there's no gates or anything like that. It's not like some, you know, if you get a visual of, you know, guards and right, stuff. Right. It's not like that. You know, they, it, it's apartment-style living, okay. the Shatterproof program, where you have, you know, women in their own apartment, men in their own apartment. I was uh, in an apartment with about three other, or three other guys, big, huge apartment, you know, kitchen, uh, all that stuff. So I'd wake up early in the morning. I would do my meditation, my journaling. Then group would start. We'd do group for about half the day. And then the rest of the day was either breath work or music therapy or yoga or acupuncture or neurotherapy. Then you'd have some downtime and then kind of you'd do something different the next day. Okay. And you, but so it would, everybody's on different treat, different patient tracks, sure. but that's what my day looked like when I was down there. But that's a good visual because I, I would have thought like, did it look like a hospital and somebody's wheeling no. in your breakfast? No, or, no, 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 or no, no. And that's, and that's, you know, what does it look like? <laughs> yeah, that's Jello only for Patrick. <laughs> we don't want him to hurt himself. Just give him Jello. Right. No. Um, <laughs> he parked all the sharp objects away from him. No, I mean, it's, you know, I was to, to your point. I mean, I didn't know what to expect. Right. But it really is. I remember when I got to intake, you know, they were like, because I had just been in a hospital in Denver and they take off all your clothes and you're in like a hospital smock and stuff. And I remember they were like, they took my, you know, they made sure you didn't have any contraband or sure. anything like that. Did some a PBT or something when you got in, did some blood work. But I remember I got to wear my own clothes and I was thinking, wait a minute, this is because they don't, we don't want you to feel like a, a patient. Right. You know, and I want to literally shatterproof. It's a huge campus and shatterproof is literally across the street. And then you get moved over there, and it's it looks like a it looks like a resort, for lack of a better word. You know, it's wow. it's a very nice place. Uh, it doesn't look like a treatment facility. They treat everybody down there. I mentioned there's different programs down there. Shatterproof is just one of the programs, but they, we keep the shatterproof folks to you know by themselves and isolated, not isolated, but within their own little area mm-hmm. uh, in the campus. Um, but yeah, pool, weights, um, yeah. And coping I, skills, right? And coping and, skills. I mean, throughout this, the, it's probably what I've heard the most is that folks that actually go to a 30-day plus, one of the things is you're there enough to actually test out the different copings, journaling, art therapy, Absolutely. yoga, even first responder yoga, because that's yeah. a joke here. Yeah, we, they have it down there. <laughs> yeah. They have it down there. And actually to, enough that when you do leave and move on and continue the recovery you know, on your own or where you live, that they can actually practice it because... They're practicing it while they're there. They're not. It's not like a one and done uh, trial. And I've I found that that's probably something. And that's why when you mentioned journaling, um, I know where you were coming from. It's like that's not even a common thing for folks unless they've actually been to therapy at least once yeah. or twice. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's probably one of the most beneficial things. It is. is. It takes away the stigma that oh, I'm going to go color like this until you do it and you realize what it does. It's powerful. Yes. I mean, journaling is powerful. I mean, I, I was journaling before I went through treatment, but I really started getting more into it after treatment. And I tell people, you know, any, any program out there, Shatterproof is an amazing program. I recommend it for any first responder out there. But the real work starts after you leave treatment. Yep. Yeah, you're in, I was in a bubble for in treatment, and I was, I was happy. And I, not initially, but I, you know, started feeling better. Sure. But I remember when I was discharging, and they set up all my IOP and all my outpatient stuff before, and that's another thing that they do down there. Before, you know, anybody leaves on the first responder, or even civilians that are there seeking treatment, they're going to set staffs going to work on setting your IOP plan and your treatment plan before you even leave. That's awesome. And with resources, with resources, say you you're coming back to Mesa or somebody right. you're coming back to Phoenix or Phoenix PD. You know, so we're going to have everything in place. So you hit the ground running. 
That's great. But I remember discharging thinking, oh, crap. What do I do now? But I, I was in a better place. Yeah. And so I tell people, you know, Shatterproof is going to give you the foundation. Any treatment is only as good as you're willing to put into it. Right. Sure. You know, if, if you're not going to put in the time and the effort to get better, then I don't know what to tell you. You have to want to get better. And I wanted to get better. And so, but the real work begins after treatment. And it's, it's not, a, there's no end date. You know, it's, it's, you know, life's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And it's uh-huh. never ending. Uh-huh. So you have to keep up with it. What was the hardest thing for you transitioning back home? And after, after like you said, after the scare of, oh my God, I'm going home. And as you are continuing recovery, what has been one of the hardest things? Well, I think, you know, initially is, okay, what do I do now? And I, I, I mentioned, I think before when I, in a, you know, cause I talk all the time and I, I think, you know, Vicki, that I, I started realizing about halfway through my treatment, about three quarters of the way that I, I really want to work here because the place is, man, to, to, to be in that place where you see first responders getting better and healing when they come in at their worst, their lowest point, and then they slowly start getting better. I, I, wanted to be a part of that magic for lack of a better word i wanted to be part of it it was like its own drug i mean i I wanted to help people you know achieve that and so when i was again halfway or whatever through my treatment i said i want to work here so i put that in my mind i said i really want to work here so i started you know connecting with the counselors and stuff and and saying look if there's a chance i mean i my my degrees are in business but you know i'd love to work here and so to answer your question, when I initially got home, I, uh, I didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, I, I had the tools. I had the foundation. Sure. I knew I was going to be fine, but it was a matter of, okay, what am I going to do now? I had my show, but, you know, show's great. I mean, I'm not discounting that, but what am I going to do now for work? Right. And about two or three weeks after I got home, uh, I got a call from, from people at Shatterproof, and they said, we're interested. You know, you did really well in treatment. We know you have a show and all this other stuff that you're doing for first responders. And... You know, we started talking back and forth for about a week or two. And then lo and behold, I got a call from the CEO and said, I understand you want to work here. And so we had an interview. And next thing you know. Do you think having, so, you know, we talked about this before about we're terrible at taking care of ourselves. And it's usually the other people that motivate us to do that. Do you think coming out, though, and having a goal, and the goal could have been to be a better dad, to be a better husband, or to go back to work. Uh, It could be anything. But that before you actually left, you had a goal that you set, and it was in your nature, which is, I'm still with first responders, I'm still giving back, I'm still gonna be, I have a purpose and another way to just kind of help. Do you think that actually helped you adjust and kind of keep at it and dig a little deeper and make sure you clean out all the closet, you know, all those, all those things kind of stirring back there that you can be good enough to help somebody else? Absolutely. I mean, I, you make a good point, Vicki. I mean, you, what are your goals? I mean, I, I had my goal and among other things that was sure. I had other goals, but I really wanted to, to focus on working there in some capacity, sure. uh, to, to, to give back and to help. So for the listeners out there, yeah, what are your goals? I mean, you might've, maybe you just got back from treatment. Okay. What next? You have to build on that. You know, you have to build on that foundation. And I knew I wanted to build on the foundation foundation of treatment I got. And like I said, I'm just blessed to be in a position now to, to help first responders. And because that really brings me joy. I mean, I get up every morning and I, I have this flashing board in front of me. Then it says help one today. Oh, you know, if I could help just one person today right? yeah. in any, I mean, there's in no anybody, definition, right? there's no definition, it could be anybody. I mean, it could be anybody. And so that's my mission now is to, to help people specifically first responders. I'm not discounting sure. the general pro, uh, public, but that's, that's my goal. And sometimes I get on the phone with people and they just want to talk and that's it. Okay. That's fine. At least I'm, you know, trying to help them. And other times people call me up and say, I need treatment. Okay, let's go. Let's do it. Well, you know? I, I, I think it's interesting that you, you believed in it so much and you, in the genuine side of that, that you even mentioned in the pre-interview that you actually even ch- kind of changed the course of your podcast a little bit. Absolutely. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, you know, I've had the show for CJ Evolution for about seven and a half years now. I started it when I was still working as a, as a police officer. And it was funny. I remember listening to a show one time. I was driving around on graveyards and I was like, I want to do that. I want to I have my own show. 
And at the time, there wasn't a lot of, you know, criminal justice, you know, first responder shows. So I just did it. I just went for it. And it was hard, you know, being a full-time cop. And But, you know, so I've, had, I've just been blessed. I, I've talked about everything from use of force to racial inequality to all kinds of stuff from both sides of the aisle on my show. I've been blessed to have many guests. But I, in the last couple of years, I've kind of shifted a little bit more now given with what I'm doing, I still talk about law enforcement issues sure. uh, and things like that. But now I, I want to focus more on like uh, mental health issues and addiction issues with law enforcement. So I'm blessed to have guests from, you know, all different sides, not just from first responders, but, you know, civilians who come on and, and talk about addiction and, and mental health challenges, um, you know, to, to kind of help the listener. Uh, but I still talk about criminal justice, sure. you know, you have uh, to. topics and things like that. But I've kind of pivoted, and that's that's my goal now, you know. And uh, I really want to start uh, at the beginning of the year. I want to start focusing. We mentioned talking about the families more, yeah. because I think the families often, especially spouses and partners, they get left behind. You know, the focus is so much on the first responder that I think the wife or the spouse, you know, the husband or whatever, and the kids are kind of just left behind, and there's not a focus on them. Uh, I think we're getting better at it, but I think there's a lot more to go. So oh, I really yeah. want to focus on, you know, the families. Still focus on the first responder, sure. but focus on, okay, they're going through hell. How is it affecting their families and, and their perspectives on things? So I think that's very important that they continue to have a voice, have a bigger voice than before. Do you know of any programs like Shatterproof, or does Shatterproof have a division that works with the families? Or uh, we family we're, we're always in contact with the families. You know, we're always briefing family members and giving them updates on the patient's progress. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because I mean, obviously, we have to do release of information sure. and stuff like that. But you know, a lot of times, family members are on there; they're getting briefed on the patient's progress we are looking at starting a family only first responder that's, family only program um, you know which i think would be huge but oh, you know yes. beneficial for first responder families um, we do support obviously first responder you know the, the spouses and the kids and things like that but right now the shatterproof program is only for first responders but we are looking at starting programs out there for families of first responders too. yeah that would be an a, a wonderful addition only because as a first responder you're going in you're now learning so many tools to work with your own mental health issues. You're learning how to communicate better. But back home, we have a spouse and we have kids who are still in it. Absolutely. Don't know how to communicate, don't know how to identify and acknowledge their feelings. There's still anger and pent up and it's got to come out somehow. And then you're coming home and saying, well, let's try this, but they haven't had the, yeah. the process. They haven't had the process, and it's almost like a, a shock now. Yeah, you know, it's like, who okay, are you? <laughs> where were you the last, you know, <laughs> right. several years right. when, when I wanted to talk, and now you come back happy in a good place, which is good. Right. But now, where's my help? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's like quid pro quo. Okay, you did that. What are you going to do for me, kind of thing? And I get it. I think that's very important. You do know, you to find to have that. in some. I'm sorry. Do you find in some of the? You know, you've obviously been doing this a long time, uh, much longer than us. And as and and we see this common theme in just a year. So when you're talking about seven, eight years, and especially in the last few, and as you're hearing about these mental health struggles and addiction and all that, are you actually seeing that the family is excluded or? Or wondering if the family was kind of on board with this first responder from the get-go of either treatment or when the signs and symptoms, maybe the family would be better. Maybe it'd be intact. Do you actually see that? Or have you been seeing that when you pay attention to kind of what's behind the door? As far as like, are the families left behind? Yes. Yeah. Like, you, can you actually hear it? I don't think it's, I don't think it's intentional. I mean, I, I don't I think, think we intentionally or, or programs go out and intentionally kind of exclude the family, but we need to do a better job at realizing that it's a family unit. Right. right. Okay. We, we, we have somebody comes to Shatterproof. Now you're with your Shatterproof family yep. and your FHE family. Okay. What about when they leave and they discharge yep. and they go back to their other family? Right. So what are we doing for the, the family members, wherever they land, you know, right. the spouses, the kids and stuff like that, because they need help too. They do. And I think even agencies uh, struggle with that. You know, I know even at my agency, that's the one area that, you know, and, and I still hear it, that even unless there's a line of duty death or a, you know, an officer involved shooting where there might even be an injury, that's the only time that either peer support teams or even supervisors sometimes meet the family yeah. when something's so bad. But for the other stuff, the stuff that we don't talk about, the addiction, the 
work performance issues, the struggle before it gets that bad, or those bad calls in general, we're forgetting about the family. We, it's exactly. hard to get into there um, because they don't want that part. No. Well, and, and think about it. I mean, when when things aren't going on, because I know I have experienced that. You know, maybe you get in an argument with your spouse or sure. something like that, and things aren't going well at home. Uh, it's going to bleed into your work performance, Absolutely. no matter. I know some of you are thinking, "No, it doesn't. I'm great." Well, okay, something's <laughs> suffering. Yep. And it's probably going to be your work performance in some way, you know, fashion right. or, or way. If, if stuff is not good at home, I'm not saying you're not going to have periodic arguments or disagreements, but if you are constantly, you know, isolating and stuff like that, and the only time you perk up is when you want to go to work, that's going to bleed into your performance. Oh, absolutely. And so if things aren't right at home, things aren't right at work. Right. You know. That's and a good so, advice right there. Yeah. Okay. So as a commander, how did you, well... Again, more two-parter questions. <laughs> what, it's going to be, um, what changes would you like to see in departments going forward? And and are you seeing improvements with departments? Well, maybe it's a three-parter. And then yourself as a commander, did you have the skill set and or the training to recognize this with your officers? Uh, any, you you know, know, I'll start, I'll start at, the, at the end of that. You know, did I have, I think it's a learning process for any department. Look, law enforcement's not in the business to we're, we're in the business to to catch bad guys investigate mm-hmm. crimes put cases together present them to the da so this is even though we've we've known about mental health issues for a while it's still foreign territory for a yeah. lot of cops we're just not trained to to yep. deal with this i'm not that's not an excuse that's just the reality right. but me as a commander yeah i mean i you go through cit training you know, you do other training to recognize signs and symptoms. But I think it, when I was in charge, I, I think there were times when I missed it. I remember one sergeant, you know, came in, into my office one day where we were, we were doing an uh, evaluation, an annual evaluation. He came in and I'm really good friends with this guy. I mean, I've known him for a long time, but, um, you know, he had been a little depressed. I didn't, you know, I noticed, well, I didn't know he was depressed at the time, but I noticed a change in him. And I was like, you know, he, he's kind of looked sad and kind of disconnected and stuff. But I didn't say anything. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I not say anything. Don't. If if it, if it uh, if I don't say anything, it's like that eight hundred pound grill in the room. I mean, it'll just go away, but it's still there. But I remember he was in front of me, and I was like, "Well, how you doing? How's the wife?" He said, "I've been divorced for eight months." And I was like, "I'm doing a crappy job at my job." Wow. Yeah. So uh, nobody. I mean, how do you train a law enforcement officer or a senior executive? to recognize these signs. Yeah, I mean, you disconnect and your work productivity goes down. But are we, when we recognize, are we are we doing something about it? Yeah. You know, are, are we reaching out, you know, and saying what's wrong? Right. And most of the time we don't. Uh, I think there's some departments out there that are really good with mental health and, and, you know, peer support teams and encouraging an environment of reaching out. I think other departments suck. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of departments out there are just, you know, saying what they need to do to, you know, to have this facade like they're helping their troops. You know, the number one thing, and I talk to a lot of people like you both do, the number one thing I hear from uh, first responders out there when they're talking about, you know, the bad place they're in is they don't feel the, ba- the, the brass or the command staff, or whatever you want to call it, in their department has their back. Yeah, I'm not talking about disciplinary issues. I'm talking about they feel this environment where if they're they want to reach out, they don't think that they're going to be supported. And perception is reality. Now, people out there, oh, it's not like that. And we want that. Well, okay, perception is reality. And if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, (laughs) it's a duck. And so I think that's the first thing. It all starts with leadership, right? I mean, it starts internally. You have to set the tone in an organization. And again, I think some departments are really good. I got a good friend, Neil Gang, who's out in California, Pinole Police Department. He's the chief out there, and he leads from the top down with that mantra. Makes and a difference. He's doing amazing work. If, if you are fostering that environment, realizing that as first responders, we're not designed to see the trauma we see on a daily basis, and it's going to affect you sooner or later, if you lead by that and realize that sooner or later our first responders are going to need help, you can't just keep doing this yeah. day in and day out. When you foster that kind of environment, I think that's half the problem. I think that's a huge, you know, uh, a huge step forward. The reality is, is that some departments don't do that. I would say more than some. A lot of them don't do that. So we still have a lot of work to, to yeah. do. And in this day and age where first, your mental health is first and foremost, it's a topic of discussion. 
I think we need to be doing a better job. We still got a long way to go, but I think we've done, you know, a lot of departments have done a good job so far. Ditto. Yeah. I want to say amen, but I'll go with ditto. Because that was, can you, can you like package that as an advertisement and put it in a couple of chiefs, you know, conferences and meetings? Because it is, I agree with you, top down. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's just, I hate to use the term, you know, the old school mentality. It is that old school mentality. I mean, I've heard it, you know, before. Well, you know, suck it up, drive on. Okay, you can't. You can't keep using that. Yeah. You can't. It might have worked back in the day, even though it didn't work back in the day. We just weren't that aware of it. You, you can't use it now. Right. And just because you sucked it up doesn't mean that your officers should suck it up. Right. And I guarantee you the people that are saying just suck it up and drive on are, are suffering from their own crap. Right, right. That they don't want to talk about. Yeah, that's the way it's always been done. Yeah, it's, it's always been done. It's the most toxic statement. You know, ever, it's so. always been done that way. And so... You know, and I, I, I hear people say, well, why do people, why would your people become cops? That's what they sign up for. No, I didn't oh. sign up for the carnage and the trauma and the death. You know, it's like asking an NFL player who gets hurt. Well, you signed up to get a concussion and a career-ending injury. No. no, they didn't sign up for that. Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. So I get irritated sometimes when I hear that. I bet. Yeah. yeah. Well, so then I'm going to ask you, since you kind of hit it on all, if you had to give advice, and I'm going to do a Sally and do a two-parter here. <laughs> If as a leader, as a you know, former administrator, like you said, uh, leadership, command, all of that, if you can give any leader a piece of advice when it comes to taking care of their peeps, what would that be? And as an officer who struggled, what a piece of advice, if any, would you give somebody who's struggling out there to get help? Well, from the leadership aspect, I think first and foremost, you have to get to know your people. Yeah. Get to know your people better. Now, I know you say, oh, my department's 10,000 people. Okay, get to know your people. Okay. Take time to get to know your people. Yeah. I mean, it's so simple, but I think it's so powerful. I mean, the more you know your people, the more you're going to see signs of something's wrong. Right. And the average department out there is less than 100. You know, but even if you're at the LAPD, Chicago PD, you can still make time to get to know your people. Yep. Go talk right. to people. Go to a briefing. Talk to people. Get a sense right. of what's going on. You know, you know, you know. Plug into your, your line-level, you know, supervisors and say, I want you to, you know, talk to your people. Report back to me how they doing. You know, I mean, just getting to know your people, you know, I think is the first and, and foremost. It's, it's, it can be done. Oh, yeah. It can be done. Can. And for the officer out there, you know, the, the hardest thing is just reaching out. It's just reaching out and ask for help. You know, and I encourage people to do that and reach out to me. You know, I give up my number all the time. Call me. I'm not here to judge. It's all confidential. I'm not going to broadcast your information out there, but reach out. That's the hardest step. But, you know, as soon as you make that call, you're going to feel better. And even if it's a conversation or maybe it's treatment, the hardest thing is to reach out. And you can do it. You're a first responder. I'm going to piggyback off of that. Just one last question. What would you like the spouses or the families of a law enforcement officer to know um, about this lifestyle and how to best support their Leo? You know, I, that's a great question. Uh, that's a really good question. I, I would say, you know, support the first responder, but don't don't continue to hide in the background like so many families do and to, yeah. to kind of take a second te- uh, seat. You know, demand that, you know, the first responder, whatever that is, fire EMS, you know, really put your foot down and say, look, we need to talk. Find need, your voice. Yeah, yeah, find your voice. Yeah. Because I think, I know with my, you know, I that's horrible, my wives, my, my two <laughs> wives, my ex-wives, you know, they would kind of like, you know, I would say, I don't want to talk about it. And instead of putting their foot down and, you know, kind of demanding and, and, you know, not getting into a, a, you know, a huge argument. No, we need to talk about this and kind of standing up for yourself. I think that's huge. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, nobody spouse or kids sign up for this stuff they don't sign up for the isolation and the anger and stuff like that so you as a spouse or a family member have every right in my opinion to say look we need to talk about this because if we don't talk about this you know i I don't want to keep living like this you know and unfortunately a lot of us by the time we get to the point where you know it's the damage is done and sometimes it's hard to come back from that and it yeah. doesn't have to be that it way. It doesn't have I to be that way. I think that's just the ending. There's no lost hope. There's no lost it hope. It doesn't have to be that no. way. And there is a better future on the other Absolutely. side. Like It's okay. But it's like anything it. else, Sally. It's, it's, and you know this, and Vicki, you know this, and some of your listeners might. It takes hard work. It does. And, it, and, and that's, the, that's the thing is, is that you know, it, it's not going to happen overnight. But it all starts with that conversation, and it starts with, you know, putting your foot down as far as a family member and say, Dad, Mom, whatever, 
we need to talk because it's affecting me. Right. You know, what you're doing is affecting me, and please just be open and honest. I'm going to love you, I mean, no matter what. And that's the thing. Come at it from a place of love, not mm-hmm. being judgmental. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to come at it from a place of love, not trying to judge, but, you know, we need to, you need to work on this. And on that, I'm going to say thank you, Pat. Absolutely. It was such a pleasure to meet you and speak with you and have you share this information. I know this is going to help quite a few people out there. And it's just been an honor to meet you. Thank you, Sally. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for riding along with us today. We hope our perspectives from the passenger seat helped you gain some insights to navigate the Leo lifestyle. For additional information and resources, visit us on Instagram at Ride Along Chronicles. Follow, like, and comment for more. Also, if you haven't already subscribed to the podcast, hit the subscribe button. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions about this episode or suggestions for future topics, leave a comment or send a confidential email. See you on the next ride.